0: All right, all right. We got a little family time birthday shout outs. The first one, we got Jalisa with us, our former missions coordinator, now missionary, visiting us from the frozen north. And her mom is celebrating her birthday. Can we all say happy birthday, Marcia? We've got Jackie and her mom, Rita. Rita is celebrating her 91st birthday. Come on, can we say happy birthday, Rita? Happy birthday, Rita. And George, our bassist, is celebrating his 40-something born-again birthday following Jesus. Came, George, we love you, bro. We're so thankful for you. Why don't you stand with me to your feet? I will stand for the next 34 minutes. You will stand for the next 37 seconds. Say, thank you, Jesus. I wanna read to us one passage. It's Luke 22, and then I'm gonna have you sit down. It says this, Simon... Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Jesus, do that this morning in our hearts, in Jesus' name, amen. You can find your seats, turn to your neighbors. say, get ready. I wanna begin with a question. Have you ever had the delightful experience of being surprised by a test you were not prepared for? Anybody ever been in that spot, right? A pop quiz, if you're in school or still in school, or remember school viscerally, maybe it's a surprise, you were doing a presentation, your boss just decided, you know what, I'ma jump in on the presentation. You're like, I'm so glad you're here, this is awesome. Right, I bring back a little middle school, high, to, high school PTSD in case the Silent Killer series didn't deal with all your trauma. Have you ever sat? Do you remember sitting in school and hearing this phrase when you walked in the door? Hey, did you study for the test? And your next response was, "What test?" I was reminded this week of Mr. Cloutier. Mr. Cloutier was my ninth grade math teacher, and I remember him because he was the worst. Mr. Cloutier felt like it was his mission in life to teach ninth grade kids who barely knew how to get their own life together, how to structure our entire lives without fail so we would never forget an assignment or something like that's actually a need you have because we have phones with calendars, but that's not the point. Mr. Cloutier went out of his way to not remind us about exams. Anybody had a teacher like this? This just feels good to get. Mr. Cloutier, at the beginning of the year, he said, hey, class, here's what's going on. Um, I've got your whole schedule. It's a whole schedule planned out. He was a math teacher, so this might explain it. He was like, I'm not a math guy. Some of you math people, God bless you. But he's like, I've got your whole schedule planned out for the entire semester, and here it is, and here's all the dates you need to know, here's all the exams, here's all the tests, here's all the quizzes. He gives us a sheet of paper, and he's like, now you got it. And, And without fail, we would come into class, and there was always at least a student who was like, all right, everybody, It's time to put, you know, put away all your books. It's time for a test. And without fear, there's always a student like, oh, and he would just sit there smiling. I'm like, I've heard of this educational pedagogy. Actually, I've heard of this teaching philosophy. I'm pretty sure it was developed in the Hunger Games. Like, I'm pretty sure that's what happened here. And people are like giving their lives to try to figure this out. I mean, it was, it was a mess. You ever been there where you forgot, you weren't ready, you weren't prepared. And all of a sudden the quiz, the test, the examination comes and you are not ready. No one likes that feeling. It's a bummer when it's school. It's a bummer when it's a professional exam. It's a bummer when it's a presentation that you are not anticipating this additional audience. But what about when the stakes are even higher? What about when it's more than just your professional life? What about when it's your emotional life and your personal life? What about when it's your spiritual life? What about when your very relationship with God and your faith itself is at stake? Leading up to the series, I've just been stuck on this moment. Jesus says, Peter, Simon Peter, Satan, the devil, the enemy of your souls, he has asked or he has demanded to sift you like wheat. I don't know about the rest of y'all. I read that and I'm like, oh, Jesus is simple. Tell him no, right? <laughs> Satan has requested to sift you like wheat. I'm like, that's great, just tell him no. I'm good, I'm all right, I don't need that. And And yet I could not shake this idea because the reality is for all of us in this season, it has been a sifting time for us, has it not? If you're not familiar with agrarian society and harvesting, which I'm sure you're not because you live in South Florida, this would be describing the process of of going through the harvest process. They would either throw the grain up in the air, they would do some sort of refining process and, and the bad stuff would be whittled away and the good stuff would remain. He says, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat and it has been a sifting season for us all. On one hand, we've got the pandemic. We're watching people that we know and love suffer. We've lost loved ones. We've sat in grief. We've sat in tears. We've wondered, God, why? So much pain. So much disappointment. So much death. On the other hand, we've... We've dealt in the midst of the pandemic with divisions and fractures, whether it's about politics or racial issues or vaccines and masks and healthcare. We've watched relationships become fractured. Some of them, it feels like beyond the point of repair. And if we're being honest, the fractures did not stop with people. For many of us, we watched relationships with God fracture and even dissolve as well. From questioned faith to deconstructed faith, to often a loss of faith altogether, an unprecedented falling away, prominent religious leaders and and Christian pastors, and maybe for some of us it hit even closer to home as friends and family members and neighbors and relatives and people that we used to know and love and celebrate and worship with, and we still now know and love, but we don't worship with them anymore because they've decided that Jesus isn't the way. He's a way, or he's not a way that they wanna pursue any longer. And if you resonate with this sentiment, I have felt and I'm imagining that many of us have felt in this season like, God, I'm not quite sure how much more of this I can take. God, I'm not quite sure how much longer I'm going to be able to hold on here. God, I'm not quite sure that you realize and remember who you're dealing with. I'm not a superhero, God. It's me, John. And I'm at the end of my rope. Jesus says, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. We are in a season of soul sifting like never before. We are in a season of shaking. We are in a season of testing that to be quite frank, we did not realize was coming. It's the pop quiz of humanity and it sure feels like we're bound to fail. And here's Jesus's answer. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded, Satan has requested to have you that he might sift you like wheat. What does he say? But I have prayed for you that your faith might not fail. How many of you think Jesus's prayer requests get answered? He's got kind of an inside track, right? Inside track with heavenly dad. He said, I've prayed that your faith would not fail. We're kicking off a brand new series this week called Believing Big. Everybody say it with me, Believing Big believe in big. It exists for exactly this prayer, that your faith might not fail. I am praying, we are praying that your faith, that your microchurch's faith, that your kids' faith, that us as a faith community, that our faith would not fail. Joining in Jesus's prayer with a series all about faith in the midst of adversity. And so for the next five weeks, we'll be following the roadmap of Isaiah chapter 40, an uncanny parallel with the Israelites in Isaiah and the people of modern humanity right now. Isaiah is writing to a people whose nation has been destroyed. Their temple lies in ruins. Their kids have been carried into captivity. They're sitting in despair in a foreign land. They've lost their holy city. They've lost their vision. They've lost their hope. They feel forgotten by God. And it says at the end of chapter 39, and they just finally sit down by the river Babylon and weep. Can anybody relate to that sentiment in this season? You're like, man, when you got nothing else to do. It's Isaiah chapter 40. So there's been 39 chapters preceding this all about the indictment and righteous judgment of God. To be clear, the people of God completely deserved what they had gotten. It was their pride. It was their rebellion. God had given warning after warning after warning. They said, wow, we're good. Now we're fine. Now we'll figure it out. And finally they got it and they brought it on themselves. And as he's detailing and outlining all of the destruction that has happened as a consequence of their actions and bad decisions. Then they come to chapter 40 and God in his infinite mercy and love begins to breathe. I don't know why I did that. He begins to breathe hope and comfort and faith into their sails. This is a series with a laser focus on injecting faith into your mind, heart, soul, and family. For the next five weeks, I have the assignment of stirring your faith, of nurturing your faith, of watering your faith, of fertilizing your faith. And my prayer is by the end of this series, you will be functioning at the greatest hope and faith levels you have ever had before. Why? Because we need it now more than ever before. And in a world where everything is being shaken, faith taps you into a kingdom which can not be shaken. Welcome to believing big. Anybody ready for this? One time. First things first, and then we'll jump into the first few verses of Isaiah chapter 40. The call to believe can sound overwhelming and stressful, and I'll hit on that, which is why there's great news for you today. If you're taking notes, I jot down here's my big idea, my core premise, and then we'll dive into it. Believing big starts with good news, not good advice. If we're gonna launch into this series, if we're gonna move in the direction I feel like God wants us to move in, believing big starts with good news, the gospel, not good advice or religion. Isaiah chapter 40, if you've got a Bible, you can flip there. If not, I've got it for you up here on the screen. Are you ready? All three of y'all. Are the rest of y'all ready? Okay. You know, I'm a talkback preacher. I'm going to preach better and shorter the more you scream at me. So Justin screamed preacher white boy last week. That was awesome. You can scream whatever you want. I really don't care. Just like say something like amen, holly, y'all know. Okay, here we go. Isaiah 40 starts with this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended. Her iniquity is pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That sound familiar to anybody if you've read the gospels before? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough paces a plain, and the glory of the Lord. Come on. This is the prayer. Lord, do it this morning. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You ever needed comfort? You ever been in a spot where you needed comfort before this, this verse, this, this chapter kicks off with this interesting starting point, comfort, comfort. In Hebrew, when you repeat something twice, it's like, no, for real, for real. Like, for real, for real. Comfort, comfort my people. My my wife and I have two kids. Our oldest is Liam. Our youngest is Lucia. She is two years old. And Lucia is sugar sweet. This girl is a comforter for what our boy has and. Big, bold emotions and crazy energy, which I'm not quite sure where he got that from. Our little girl, Lucia, has in just sugar sweet disposition. I mean, if Liam, if he does something, if he gets upset, if the emotions get in there and he starts crying, Lucia walks over, she's like, I'm sorry, bruh, bruh. She didn't do anything wrong. She's like, I'm sorry, bruh, bruh, I'm sorry. She'll start petting him. She'll start stroking, I'm sorry, bruh, bruh. If if something's going on and he's upset about something, she'll walk over there and she'll be like, it's okay, bruh, bruh, it's okay, bruh, bruh. If we put Liam in timeout, because he's acting a fool and he has not been saved yet. And he's sitting there in timeout. We're like, Liam, you got to sit there. Guess what Lucia does? She walks herself over to timeout and sits down there in timeout with Liam so that he doesn't have to be in timeout alone. Everybody say, aw. It's sweet, right? I'm like, you're, you're, you're doing counter to what we're trying to do. Lucia, you're, you're sabotaging our disciplinary structure here. Gosh, so godly. Our little Lucy, she's a, she's a comforter. She's a comforter. It's an interesting word for Isaiah to kick off this this chapter 40 diatribe here, but remember the context. It has been brutal for the people of God. They have lost freedom. They've lost their nation. They've lost their temple. They've lost their confidence, and they have begun, and many of them have already lost their hope. And it's interesting because I already feel it in a series on faith. I can already feel so many of us online here in the room bracing ourselves because you're like, "Oh great, here it is! Not only am I a loser in every other area of my life, but I'm a faith loser too." I know it, Pastor John. Praise God. Okay, like we we, we brace ourselves for this. I I know, I know. If I only had faith like a mustard seed, I don't know what's smaller than a mustard seed. I don't even know what a mustard seed is. I've got like a ketchup seed. I don't know. I don't know. Like. That was a dad joke, so hard, so hard. But there's great news because believing big does not start with good advice, it begins with good news. Here is the great news, when it comes to faith, when it comes to belief, it is not the size of your faith, it is the object of your faith. When it comes to faith, it's not about, well, well how, how good can I do in my positive thinking? How optimistic can I be? Some of us are optimists. We're like, yeah, I believe in big. Some of us are pessimists. You already started rolling the eyes in your heart. You're like, oh my gosh, here's all the optimists. They're gonna be all excited. Well, I'm just a realist, Pastor John. Amen, God can work with your realism, why? Because when it comes to faith, it is not about the size of your faith and the, the religious potential of your optimistic abilities. God made your personality. It's not about the size of your faith. It is about the object of your faith, namely God. It's about God. Your capacity to blow it is not as great as his capacity to redeem it. Your capacity to mess it up is not as great as his capacity to fix it up. Do you understand when it comes to believing big, it's not about how positive you can be and how hopeful you can be. It is about how cognizant you can be of the greatness of your God. That's good news, that's good news. Why, because we've sinned, because we're fallible, because we've blown it, because we've got our own version of Isaiah chapter one through 39, where God said, don't do this, and don't do that, and don't do this. I'm trying to give this call, this path for you to flourish, and we're like, ah, what do you really know? He's God, he probably knows, but I'm, I'm gonna figure it out on my own. And, and then God, In response to the rebellion, check this out. This is why the way of Jesus is so fundamentally different from any other religious system. In response to the obstinate rebellion of his people for 39 chapters, God responds with what? Comfort. This is so counterintuitive. This is so why He responds with a soft answer. He speaks comfort. And then we get to verse two speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins." How many of you are like, yeah, I relate to that one, right? It's funny, because I was reading through this and and, and doing some study and preparing for this series. By the way, we we had a whole other series planned two weeks ago, we were gonna do a whole series on the Book of Acts, and we'll still do that, I think, in January, but really felt from the Lord as Pastor Mike and I were prepping and going through stuff that this was a message that we needed to hear in the midst of this moment in this season. And so I'm going through prepping and studying, and and I'm reading this verse, and and I'm like, okay, our iniquity is pardoned, well, that's good news, and and the sins have been covered, that's good news, and then, because you've already received from the Lord's hand double for all your sins. that way, you're like, man, God, I know I did wrong, but this just feels a little over the top. This just feels a little harsh. See, we read this in the way our culture has framed the character and personality of God, but that is not what he's saying here. As I started reading through commentaries, because that's how I read it at first, I was like, oh, yeah, double, receive double punishment. It's like, well, they're going, chapters 1 through 39 has been about punishment. Chapter 40 begins with what? Comfort. God didn't have a random non sequitur. Like I do sometimes like, oh, it's great to see you. God is speaking in a linear direction here. He's like, hey, you've received pardon. Hey, you've received forgiveness. Hey, and by the way, you've received a double portion. What's he talking about? He's talking about something much better than you or I would read at first glance. He's talking about the gospel. Bible scholars and commentaries look at this verse and almost come to a unanimous conclusion. It's not talking about double punishment. It's way better than that. My mom who you got to hear from this morning which actually worked out really great and, and my father have, have been doing a prison ministry for as long as I've been a human being for as long as I can remember they would do correspondence with prisoners and and I remember sitting uh, at the dinner table and my mom was like all right now we got to pray for for Jerry who's, who's in prison I'm like, who's Jerry she's like well we pray and we would just all oh, we would be praying for prisoners they would be getting letters I remember getting little dollar bills like birthday gifts from these prisoners who were serving life or double life sentences that had found hope in Jesus and they had found a family of encouragement in the ministry my parents started and they were doing this stuff. And I'm like, that's eh, kind of weird, but it's cool also at the same time, like it was very unique upbringing. And, and then I remember hearing the stories and if you've watched the movie, The Shawshank Redemption, it kinda has this idea, but when you, when, when you look at prison recidivism rates, when you look at people that have been incarcerated and they finally get out and then they go back in this crazy phenomena. what happens is that when your iniquities are pardoned, oftentimes the reality of life is even harsher than being in a place that's known. And so if someone has been incarcerated for a long time, they finally get out and all of a sudden they're hit with how out of touch they are with the modern world, how much they missed in their current moment, how inequipped and ill-equipped they feel for the current situation. And so out of hopelessness and despondency, they go right back to the very place they knew because while their iniquity was pardoned, there was no good news for them after their forgiveness. Ooh, that'll preach. That is religion. Yeah, God, you better work real hard, and maybe, possibly, God might find it in his heart, maybe, to forgive you. And that's it. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. See, here's the gospel. You have been pardoned and forgiven, right? It's Isaiah 40, that's what it says. Your warfare is ended. Your iniquity is pardoned. But God doesn't just get us out of jail hand us our old clothes and say, all right, here you go. Figure it out and I get out of my face. He rescues, he redeems, and he restores us. Friends, this is the beauty of the gospel. This is the foundation of our hope. If we are going to jump into this series on believing big, it must begin with a deeply entrenched understanding of the holistic nature of the gospel because it is different from religion and it is different from positive thinking and it is different from man if you do your best and try real hard God might see it in his heart to forgive you maybe possibly according to the gospel and this double portion that Isaiah is highlighting is the fact that you and I in Jesus now are forgiven and accepted we are pardoned and beloved, we are rescued and redeemed. We are bailed out of jail. Oh, and by the way, adopted into a family. This is the greatest news in the history of humanity. I don't see y'all getting it right now. This is amazing. I know like, yeah, I know that. No, 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 but, but, but know that. Like this is the best news ever. This is better than Tua finally being healthy. This is better than the Miami Dolphins finally deciding to win football games. This is better than, than, than the Miami Dolphins winning a suit. This is my, better than the Miami Dolphins beating the Jacksonville Jaguars, who God knows can't win a football game against anyone. But if there's anyone who would give an unwinning team a win, it's our tribe. Are we winning, by the way? Does anyone, not that I care. I'm not very, okay, good. We're winning. Not that I care, but we are winning. Okay, thank you, Lord. This is even better than Tom Brady announcing his retirement. Come on, somebody. This is good news. You're like our pastor is a mess, amen. It's incredible. Like, if you, I see it as we're sitting back thinking about it, we're like, Wait, whoa, this is it's like you were in debt fifty thousand dollars on your student loans, and Fannie Mae comes and she's like, Oh, by the way, great news, got you covered. No more debt, you're like, that would be great. But what if she turned around, she she's like, oh, and by the way, I just figured while I'm in your account, I just went ahead and dropped a million dollars in there on top of that, right? One would be insane amounts of mercy and forgiveness. The other would be mind blowing grace. One would be not getting what you deserve, i.e. debt. The other would be getting what you do not deserve, i.e. a million dollars in the account. Do you see the nature of the gospel of grace that is different from any other religious structure or system, it's amazing. And so often somehow we make this amazing work of God and the good news of the gospel all about us. We hear a series on faith and we're immediately like, oh man, mustard seed, I'm the mustard seed guy. Oh man, like, oh ye of little faith. I get it, Pastor John, that's my theme verse. Because so often, if we are not careful, we root our faith in our religious abilities and start, instead of rooting our faith in the power of the gospel. The potency is in its truth. It's not in our optimistic abilities. It's not in our pessimistic or optimistic personality. The equalizer is the gospel because it's true. Which is why believing big, it starts with good news, not good advice. Here's where I want us to go on this first sermon, and we'll build this out. This is a sort of an all-encompassing look at faith and hope, but it's gotta begin here. What I'm trying to say is that every faith problem at its most foundational level is actually a gospel problem. Every faith problem is actually a gospel problem, which means the deeper you understand the gospel, the greater the potency of your faith. If you're having a problem with the effectiveness of your faith, great news. You don't need something new. It's not like, well, I got the starter package on my faith vehicle, but now I gotta upgrade because I wanna move into the next level. No, you don't need something new. You just need to go all the way with what you already have. Here's what I mean. The same faith that saves you is the same faith that moves mountains and answers prayers it's the same deal. It's not a different thing. The same faith that saves you, you're like, well, I've experienced that. I'm a follower of Jesus by grace through faith. I'm tracking with you. Great. The same faith that saves you is the same faith that moves mountains and answers prayer. And the deeper your understanding of the gospel, the wider your reach of faith. See, but the gospel is fundamentally different from religion. Charles Spurgeon tells the story of of a, of a great king, an earthly king, and he was wise, and he was kind, and he was just, and he was compassionate. And one day there was a very poor man in his kingdom who had borrowed a field. He was kind of subsistence farming, and he had borrowed a field. And, and, and one year he grew this incredible, massive carrot. This is his story. Biggest carrot he had ever grown. And he was so excited. He said, man, I know exactly what I'm going to do with this carrot. He said, I'm going to give it to the king. And so he gets his carrot, he washes up this carrot, he waxes up this carrot, he makes this carrot look all nice and presentable, and he brings it to the king. And he says, oh king, I love you so much. You are such a good king. I wanted to give this to you because you are amazing and this is the biggest and best carrot I have ever farmed in my entire life. And he gives it to him. He says the king was moved at the heart. He says, you know what? Because of what you've done, I'm giving you a field. You're not going to have to work someone else's field anymore and give them the majority of the produce and keep enough for yourself just to survive. Now you've got a field. That's amazing, right? Now there's a nobleman in the king's court and he's watching this go down. And so he's kind of like, wait a second. He kind of crunches the numbers. He's like, wait a second. If buddy gave a carrot and got a field, right? He was an economics major. He's like, if he, got, if he gave a carrot and got a field, then if I give something more expensive, what's going on? Oh, he's like, oh yeah. So he goes home. He looks at all his property. He's like, you know what? I got four horses. I'm gonna give him my best horse. And so he brings his horse the next day to court and he's like, oh king! And he repeats repeats the dialogue. Oh king, I love you so much. I care about you so much. And because I love you, I wanted to give you my best horse. King's like, cool, thanks so much. Goes on. (laughs) And the nobleman is obviously taken aback. He's like, whoa, I don't understand." And, and finally, he's like, king, I don't understand. Like, I, I watched the formula happen yesterday, and it turned out great for the poor man. I was kind of anticipating a little bit more than a thank you. And the king said, well, let me explain. He says, yesterday, the poor man gave me a carrot, but today, you gave yourself a horse. And this is where we miss it. Remember, there's a story in the Gospels and, and this woman kind of busts into a house party that's happening with a bunch of religious leaders and, and she just starts pouring fragrant perfume on Jesus' feet and washing it in her hair. Kind of an awkward scene if you really think about it in your mind. You're like, that'd be the weirdest party ever, right? And Jesus, and, and people are getting offended and they're weirded out and they're like, what's happening? And Jesus said, man, whoever, she's been forgiven much so she does what? She, she loves much. She loves much. At the foundational level, this is the gospel. It's all about relationship. It's not about transaction. But the default of our humanity is religion where we try to use God for our will. We even take spiritual things like prayer and fasting, and instead of allowing it to do what it's supposed to do, which is untwist our heart to move towards his will, we try to twist God's arm to move towards our will. And where religion is going to mechanically control you, the gospel is going to liberate and transform you into who you were designed to be from the start, into who God always intended for you to be. It brings life. The gospel is so different. It's so much more potent, but the default of all humanity is religion, which is why chapters one through 39 of Isaiah will never be enough. We've gotta get to the good news, not simply the good advice. So how do we do that? How do we respond? What are we supposed to do, pastor, with all of this? To begin this journey of believing big, faith, Hope, here's my application point, prepare the way. Turn your neighbor and say, prepare the way. Prepare the way, here's what I want us to do. I want us to prepare the way. Verse three, it says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley lifted up, every mountain made low, uneven ground, level, rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is referencing back or pointing, I should say, to John the Baptist. Remember when John the Baptist comes on the scene, if you've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, the gospels, the true narrative of, of the ministry of Jesus, John the Baptist is speaking and they're like, oh, that's what Isaiah was talking about, prepare the way of the Lord. That's where it comes from, but, but this is king talk. See, what would happen in the ancient world is if a king decided to go to a a faraway land in his kingdom, they would not use any old road. Old roads, they might have potholes. Old roads, they might have robbers. But if a king was going to a new area, they would actually construct a brand new road. They didn't wanna have any issues. They didn't wanna have any problems. They would begin well in advance. And in fact, if they were going like they were in the Middle East in this time, they would go and they would water along this road to literally create a fertile road in the midst of a desert, to create a a, a healthy, a beautiful place even in the midst of a barren land. And here's the reminder, and I need us to get this. When it talks about comfort, this is the point. Into the desert, God is going to bring his glory. This is what we're not supposed to miss. Like in in, in chapters one through 39, it's been desert. It's been barren wasteland. But chapter 40, Isaiah says, but listen, listen, listen. The king is coming. You're like, oh, what kind of king? It's a good one. And when this king comes, even the desert flourishes. Some of you have been in tremendous desert seasons. I want you to hear these words of comfort this morning. If you're watching online, God has not forgotten you. He is at work, he is faithful, he is able and he will and he is able to produce streams in the wilderness. God is going to come and save the day. He is, but you've got to prepare the way. How do I do that? It's, it's really a biblical precedent that we see all throughout the scriptures. When we prepare the way for the king, it means that we repent and believe the gospel. Mark 1 says it like this, the time has come, Jesus is preaching. The kingdom of God has come near. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. You're like, okay, great, but what does it mean to repent and believe biblically? Those are like TV preacher words. Repent, ah, believe, ah. What what does that actually mean in my real, God help me. What does that mean in my real life? Like what is biblical saving faith? You're talking about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, his grace, his mercy, his love. What does it tangibly mean, pastor, to believe? Let me illustrate this thing. Picture up on the screen, I've got this dude up here. Anybody know who this dude is? Someone I think just said that, that is incredible. Wild applause for you, yeah, you're the man. This is Nils Boleen, who invented the modern seatbelt. Can everyone give a hand clap for this dude? Thank you, Lord, for this joker. He was hired by Volvo. He was hired in, what was it, 1958 to develop the three-point seatbelt up to that point. They just had a lap band. I guess people were getting cut in half and all sorts of issues were happening. I don't know, it's kind of gross. Anyways, he invented the three-point with the thing over your body and and they estimate that by the time he died in September of 2020, they estimate that that seatbelt that he invented had saved over one million lives. That's awesome, right? Thank you, Lord, for innovations. So now, you know his face, right? You know his name. How many of you believe I'm telling you the truth? I, I hope you do, your pastor is not lying to you, all right? I don't have a precedent of like, and I just love to lie to the congregation from stage. No, this is true, true story, right? You learn something new, you could go talk really knowledge, knowledgeably at your, your water cooler on, on Monday, tomorrow. Um, you know his name, you know his face, you can believe in the potency. How many of you believe in seat belts? You're like, I don't always wear them, but I do because I don't want to take it, right? Click it or ticket. it. All right, I believe in seat belts, but you could know this guy's name. You can know his face, Nils Boleyn. Okay, I got that. You could know about the potency and the power and the life-saving effectiveness of a seat belt, and it still mean nothing. How? Because no matter how genuine, ooh, this will preach. Because no matter how genuine, your theoretical belief in the life-saving power of a seatbelt, it will never save your life until you put it on. No matter how much you're convinced, you're like, Pastor John, amen, you preach. I believe the gospel. I believe this. See, so do the demons, just to be clear. If we're talking about theoretical belief, if we're talking about theoretical, yeah, I believe in Nils Bolin and the seatbelt and how effective they are. Well, I can know if you really believe because I see you driving out of Western High School and if you're going like this and reaching all the way in the back seat, I'm like, ah, you don't believe in a seatbelt. How do you know? Because you didn't put it on. Because you didn't put it on. The life-saving power of the seatbelt only comes through life-saving belief in the seatbelt, which is activated when you put it on. It's the same with saving faith. It's the same with saving belief in Jesus. Romans 13 says, but put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, saving faith, ultimately is an active faith. What do I do with the gospel? You preach it to yourself. You teach it to your friends. You have them talk about it with you. You talk about it when you sit down, when you rise up, when you go on your way, when you're at bed, when you're going to bed, when you're waking up in the morning, You, you write it down on the notes on your phone, you scroll through it and pretend it's social media so you can just keep watching it over and over again. No, doomsday scrolling, nobody does that. It's maybe a good idea for someone. You continue to saturate and put on the Lord Jesus. There's a bunch of other elements of faith. We'll get into them in the series, but I need us. We've got to start here because faith is all founded in the gospel-saving faith and the good news of what Jesus has done and what he wants to do in our hearts. I'm gonna close with this story. Worship team, you can come up and then we'll, we'll sing a final chorus together. In 1830, this is a true story, here in the United States, there was a man named George Wilson. Now George Wilson had been convicted for two crimes. He had been convicted for robbery and for murder and George Winston was tried and found guilty. In a twist that no one was anticipating, George Wilson was actually granted a presidential pardon that he refused to receive. He went on record, he said, listen, I I, I don't want this pardon. They were like, do you understand how this works? The president, has voted to save your life. You'll still do time, but you will not die. He was sentenced to execution. They said, you've been granted a pardon. He said, I know I know what a pardon is. I don't want to receive it. They're like, well, we've never had anyone do that before. <laughs> it, it was so confusing. They actually took, this is a true story. They took it all the way to the Supreme Court because they were like, what do we do with a guy who has been sentenced to life, who has been sentenced to, the, to death, to, you know, to capital punishment, but yet he does not want to receive his pardon? They went all the way to the Supreme Court. They could not figure out what exactly they wanted to do with this and they finally ended up putting him to death. And here's what the judge ruled. He said this, a pardon is not effective if it is not received. A pardon is not effective if it is not received. We hear this story, and it's almost laughable. I was reading this, I was like, there's no way this is true. I went, read through a bunch, I'm like, I, it's true. It's like history, it's crazy. Like, wh- what kind of a person would be facing death, granted a free gift of life, and then turn it aside? Who in the world would, what, who would ever do that? And then I started thinking a little bit more deeply about it, and I'm like, oh, me. See, the message of the gospel, it's true and Powerfully so. It says that you and I were guilty before God. All, all, all we like sheep have gone astray. All, we have all sinned against a righteous and holy God. We've all told God, yeah, yeah, I know what you got to say, but I'm going to do my own thing. I got it from here. And as a result, like in chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah, we stand guilty before a righteous God. But the great news of the gospel is that God so loved the world, he looked down on you and I and said, man, they've got no hope in and of themselves but I love them so much. And he sent his only son, Jesus, to pay the penalty and the punishment that we rightfully deserved and to grant us a pardon from the king of heaven himself. And yet I spent 18 years of my life saying, "Now I'm good, I'm good. And a pardon is not a pardon if it is not received. And I had a deep sense in my heart that over the past several months as we've gone through this silent killer series that maybe there's some people here in the room, maybe there's some people watching online. And as we hit on specific topics, you realize, oh man, that that is me. We we, we hit on greed, we hit on anger, we hit on bitterness, you're like, oh, that's me. And there has been a legitimate movement in your heart to say, man, I, I need to invite Jesus in, but you've invited him into a section of your life. If your life was a newspaper, you're like, okay, you can have the sports section, Jesus, or you can have the classified section, Jesus, or you can have the help wanted at Jesus, but I, the rest of it, I'm good, actually. I don't need your help. Like, I got it. And I love what my mom shared because she did not know what I was preaching on, but the reality of the, the nature of the good news of the gospel is just like a pardon. You either receive it all or you do not receive it at all. It's all or nothing. It's Jesus is Lord or John is Lord. It's Jesus is the CEO or John's the CEO. And I'll let you know if I need help. And the transformation that God wants to bring in your life and the believing big hope and faith that God is wanting to stir only is enacted when you come to a place of full surrender. Remember, it's not good advice. It's nothing you have to do to earn his love. He did it. Our job is to receive it. John 1 says, as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God. It's when you get to a point where you realize, man, you cannot fix yourself. All the things that you're sensing, you're like, I I, I know I got a lot of issues, Pastor John, but I'm really working on it. You cannot work on it enough to make it better. You can't outthink your problem. You can't outmaneuver your problem. You can't think your way or talk your way or work your way out of it. At the end of the day, friends, the same story for you. I know it because it's the same story for me. You and I must be rescued. His grace, his goodness, his love, And as we dive into this series over the next five weeks on believing big, faith in the midst of adversity, hope in the midst of seemingly insurmountable obstacles, it all starts with saving faith as we deeply believe and receive the good news of the gospel. You join me as we pray and then we'll respond together. Jesus, thank you that you're here. Thank you that you love us, that you care that you wanna speak words of comfort, words of hope, a pardoning of iniquities, and the great news of a fresh start. Lord, would you even now by your spirit stir in our hearts a desperation, a willingness to surrender, a willingness to move towards you and away from the things that we've done in our past. You can keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed just for a moment of, of quiet and privacy between you and God. If you're not sure that you have ever repented and believed, if you're not sure that you've ever responded to the gospel, if you've maybe surrendered components of your life, but you know that you have never surrendered your whole life, if your life is a car and you've gone in for tune-ups, you've said, ah, you could work on the engine, but you have never come to a point where you've said, all right, the pink slip, the keys, it's all yours. That is where it begins. And I am encouraging you and I'm giving you an opportunity to do it today, to make Jesus Lord to install him as the new CEO in your life. It's his ways, it's his rules. He's calling the shots. And friends, when that happens, when someone gets to that point of surrender, you receive the forgiveness and mercy and grace that he paid for. If we could stand to our feet right now and if I could have our prayer partners up here at the front. If God's moving on your heart, if if you're like, man, I'd like to receive some prayer. I'd like to ask some questions. I'd like to know what my next steps would be to, to say yes to Jesus and his gospel and his goodness and his grace and his forgiveness. As soon as we begin to sing, you're welcome to come forward. The prayer partners up here would love to pray with you. Maybe you're here and you've drifted. You're a follower of Jesus, but you've drifted from the power of the good news, the gospel into the panic of good advice, of religion. I wanna encourage you to come up and get rooted in the good news again. Let's close out together in worship. And as soon as we start to sing, you're welcome to come forward. Let's do it.
1: And I want it, I want it all And if you die for my freedom and my redemption Redemption, then I want it. I want it all. If your love is a river overflow, then I want it. I want it all. And if you die for my freedom and my redemption, then I want it. I want it.
0: Lord, thank you for your grace and your goodness that's readily available to us when we call. If you're here this morning and you're like, John, I've responded to this, I follow Jesus, I believe all of this stuff, man, I just, honestly, I just stopped at verse one, comfort. I just need comfort. There's something powerful that happens when the people of God connect with one another in prayer. I'd encourage you if you're in a rough spot, if you just need some comfort, if you resonated with the first part of the sermon, you're like, I didn't even, honestly, I'll go listen to it later. I just stuck right there. We would love to pray God's grace and comfort over you. And I believe the Lord's gonna do some really incredible things of restoration, even in this moment where two or more are gathered. Jesus says he's right there in the midst. Let me pray over you and then we'll dismiss. Lord. Thank you for your people. God, thank you for this church. I love this church. I love the hearts that are represented here. So genuine, so full of love for you, desiring to be used by you to be a blessing and an encouragement to other people in this season. God, I'm praying that you would use us and commission us out to be agents of comfort. Lord, that with the same comfort we receive from you in the gospel, in your grace, in your forgiveness, in your mercy, we would offer that same comfort to others. Lord, would you help us to walk honestly? If, you've, if you're moving, then we would be happy to share it and tell the truth about what you've done in our lives and what you could do in the lives of the people we love. Lord, I pray your blessing over these people, your people. Lord, would you bless them and keep them? Would you make your faith shine upon them and be gracious to them? Would you lift your countenance upon them and give you your shalom, shalom, perfect peace, wholeness, wellness, in Jesus' name, amen.